Hello everyone, I'm Jocelyn and this is Mel and you're listening to Appallingly Luscious. On tonight's show, we're going to be talking about genre and characters. Um, also listeners, we have a special guest from our very own Drake University. Can you introduce yourself? Yes, my name is Beth Younger. I teach in the Department of English. I also teach Women's and Gender Studies. And um, my main field of research is young adult fiction, adolescent lit, and uh, I'm a Twilight fan. Wow. So the question that we ask every uh, person that comes on the show is, what team are you on? (laughs) Um, I love that question. And I think it's really interesting because people are always either team Edward or team Jacob. And I like to say I'm team Bella because... Not that I'm like in love with Bella, <laughs> but I feel like why should we have to choose between? I mean, it's of course kind of what the book's about, but um, I'm Team Bella because I think she is the sort of neglected center of the novel. And people say, oh, she's boring or she's a doormat, but I think she kind of goes after what she wants. So, and I find Edward and Jacob both annoying. So yes. yeah, that's, that's <laughs> I mean, if I if like you know somebody put a gun to my head and I had to choose one, that's a terrible question. I would probably <laughs> I would probably choose Jacob, but no, I would just leave the room or something. Yeah, just walk know. out. Yeah, I'd be like, never mind. Oh my goodness. Okay, so then we have another question for you, um, and this one kind of ties into our theme of this episode, which is our characters. Most and least feminist characters. Well, again, when you ask a question like this, I think you have to kind of decide what do you mean by feminist? Um, And I think a lot of people have different definitions of what feminism is. But, um, for example, when I used to give a fake sample class on Twilight for prospective students, we would talk about, I did one for a while on Bella versus Katniss. Mm. you know, Ooh. from the Hunger Games. And so everyone was like, well, of course Katniss is more feminist. She's powerhouse. She shoots people, blah, blah, blah. Um, and then I would say, well, Katniss is kind of conscripted into that role. She yeah. That's not what she desires. And Bella kind of goes after what she wants. A hundred percent she does. <laughs> she so, really does. So how do you... Yeah, she totally does. I mean, that's like the... Fo- she has... She's almost... Bella is such an interesting character because she's a very common trope, I think, in what we would call sort of female awakening literature. Like, oh, I'm just kind of hanging around and doing the dishes and cooking and stuff. And then some person, usually a man, comes along and, you know, breathes on you or touches you or looks at you a certain way. And you're like, oh, I'm kind of tingling in a way I've never tingled before. (laughs) And so... It's have you ever read or watched the Bridges of Madison County? No, it's kind of the same similar story. This woman's living her life, and then um, whatever the guy's name is shows up, Clint Eastwood in the movie, and she has like this sexual awakening, and mm. then he leaves and whatever. But um, so the back to the feminist thing, I would say, oh my gosh, I don't know. How do you define feminism? Is it about agency? Is it about egalitarianism? I think what you were saying earlier made me think it was about, you know, um, respecting people's boundaries and yeah. consent and things like that. Um, I mean, Edward is not a feminist. Neither is Jacob, as far as I can tell. Yeah. Uh, I don't, 
I'm not sure who the least or most feminist Emmett. is. Emmett. 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 He's just a real bro. You think he's the least or most feminist? I don't know. I think, well, when it comes to physically handling Bella, he kind of sides with Edward, which is kind of, yeah. I guess, not feminist. But he the The, like, she can strapping handle. her in to the Jeep very forcefully. Yeah, that's like, true. Like, buckling her in. And just using his raw meat strength. Yeah, so maybe physically he's not feminist, but I think he doesn't really doubt Bella. He, um, especially in the scene where they're driving away from the baseball field, he um, basically forces Edward to listen to her yeah. opinions because Edward does not care. Yeah, because Edward's coming up with this whole elaborate plan and Bella's like, whoa, hold on. And then Emmett says, or and Edward's just ignoring Bella, but then Edward... Or Emmett is like, yo, dude, listen to what she's saying. <laughs> and then they finally come up with a new plan, which I guess could be yeah, helpful. I oh. think maybe in some ways it would be easier to say, because I'm not sure I could really come up with the most feminist. Mm -hmm. I would say people have feminist actions and do some feminist things. But um, I would probably say Edward, in a way, falls into the least feminist camp because he's like, he stalks Bella. He sleeps, you know, he watches her sleep. Um, he just does, you know, yeah, so he's protective of her. But how is that? That's not empowering. That's controlling. Yeah. And it's paternalistic. And um, I mean, I think it it's kind of hard to. I mean, the author is a woman, but mm -hmm. just because you're a woman doesn't make you feminist. Right. Yeah, and so. she's, you know, a conservative Mormon person so yes. i think it's an interesting question but i don't really have an answer yeah but for the most feminist i personally would say potentially it's ella or uh, uh, alice. alice because of just because of that one scene when they're running away in the hunt that chapter and alice just asks bella if she can pick her up and we're like wow this is the first time that bella isn't treated like a mannequin she's treated like a human and she's being asked if she can be picked up and all this. Yeah, and Bella even mentioned, she's like, wow, you're the first person to ask. And you go the whole book, because that's towards the end of it, you go the whole book not really thinking much of it. Mm -hmm. And then when she mentions that Alice was the first person to ask, you realize that, oh, she's probably uncomfortable with everything that's happened in this book, and we didn't even think about it. Well, yeah. and like we talked about with the quote from that created the title of this, Apollonia Luscious, like, Edward literally calls out Bella an object and literally she's being picked up moved around and thrown and like he runs with her but he's just like climb on and then they run around and she doesn't like that and there's just all this stuff that Bella doesn't have a say in mm -hmm. and I think that comes into terms with like she sees the human or the vampires as like superior and so she feels like she doesn't need she doesn't deserve like, she doesn't have a place yeah. to make a comment or anything. Well, yeah. and, and I guess you could also look at vampire culture as being sort of a, um, not a metaphor, but but kind of analogous to, like, I don't want to say masculinity or, but some kind of superior culture because she is so enamored of Edward and she so wants to be, like, I always think about the scene in the first movie when they're at that, the prom or whatever, mm -hmm. and she thinks he's going to bite her neck and she <laughs> just tells her head back. Um, Cause she, that's 
that's what she wants. She wants to be one of them. So, um, yeah, it's it's interesting to think about that. But Alice is a good choice. Yes. So can you tell us about your first time reading Twilight? Yes, I'd be happy to. <laughs> well, um, just because I do young adult fiction, Alice and Lit, whatever you want to call it, Nancy, my housemate and colleague, one day I was working and she brings this book to me. And she said, here, I think you should read this because everybody's talking about it. And I was like, seriously, you want me to read this book? You know, Twilight Vampire. And I was like, okay, whatever. Thank you. And then I put it on the stack. And then, I don't know, I think I got sick or something was happening and I was bored. And so I thought, I'm going to read this book. And it was early afternoon. Read it from cover to cover. Read the whole thing. And A 500-page book, by the way. Yeah, read the whole thing. <laughs> I think I took a break to have lunch or something. And then at the end of it, I thought, oh, my God, I need to read the second one. I mean, this has, I think, I don't know how many were out at this time. So I immediately put on a coat. I was wearing pajama pants and drove <laughs> drove with my coat to what was um, in Des Moines at the time, which was Borders Bookstore. Oh, my gosh, Borders. It was a great bookstore. It, it was long lived. And I was totally, when I first got there, I thought, okay, I had two fears. The first one was that somebody would see me. Like, I didn't really care about the pajama pants, but my fear was that somebody would see me buying a Twilight book and think I was whatever. And the second fear was that they wouldn't have it. And then I thought, what am I going to do? Because I really wanted to start reading it. And so as soon as I opened the door, in front of me was a giant pyramid of all the Twilight books that existed. And so I was like, all right, I'm all okay. All slick black. It was amazing. I mean, it was literally 15 feet tall. It's a <laughs> oh giant. Gosh. I've never seen so many. But they knew they had an audience for it. So yeah. um, So I was really drawn in. I really, really enjoyed the first one. And it, I, I think I understood part of what got so many people excited about it was because it, you felt there was something so compelling about Edward, not himself, but the way he treated her in that he wanted to know everything about her. He wanted to know her favorite ice cream. He wanted to know, I mean, who among us doesn't want somebody to be so interested in us that they want to know everything about us? For sure. I think that's. Yeah. His was to a creepy extent though. And I think part of it was because he's so used, because he can read minds. So he's so used to knowing everything about everybody. And the fact that he can't read Bella's mind is what draws shield, him yeah. to her, but it's kind of creepy. <laughs> well, and I think it fits. I mean, these are just my own sort of theories about this kind of the way that ro heterosexual romance functions in patriarchy is. I mean, this goes into a lot of stuff, but I would say the creepiness of it. Um, th there's this very interesting liminal space or ecotone, my favorite Ooh. new word between like okay there's romance here and then there's like stalkerism abuse obsession ownership and so these parts of stalkerism abuse ownership leak into romance i mean think about the way we've depicted you know heterosexual romance should be a man pursuing a woman and the woman pretending to not be interested and say oh no oh no which really means take me i'm yours so i think edward performs that function very well by being on the verge of creepy and stalkerish, but it's because, and think about, we hear about this in culture all the time. 
like when guys kill their wives or well, he was in love with her. He was obsessed. He didn't want anyone else to have her, so he had to kill her. So yeah, Edward does a good job at keeping that in check. He takes the precautions. He leaves town for about a week to make sure he doesn't kill her. Yep. So that's a good point. Got the one up on those guys. <laughs> um. So can you talk a little bit about um the young adult genre specifically in academia and like how you've studied it and how maybe it's changed a little bit um just a brief intro to that a brief intro a brief intro <laughs> um, maybe not so brief come back in an hour no <laughs> i can do a brief intro it's it's um it's always and all always has been i think really fascinating to me because it's such a kind of a disputed area of fiction because a lot of people don't take it seriously, especially in academia. I think they do now more than when I started. Like one of my um, advisors in grad school, when I told her what I wanted to write about, she's like, oh, don't do that. Everybody does that. I thought, well, you know. That sounds familiar to us. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> don't do that. That's so boring and stupid. Don't do that. It's Twilight. It's dumb. Yeah. Ugh, so frustrating. But, you know, part of that, I think, stems from the primary audience of YA, which is young women. I mean, that's what it is. But it also extends to older women and just people in general. So I don't, I, I think that's a really, I mean, look, we marginalize popular culture. We're still having a struggle of, you know, should we all have to read Faulkner and Dickens and Shakespeare? Or is the way we read things and the process of doing it what's important rather than the text themselves? Mm -hmm. So I think there's a lot of conflict there. But um, I mean, because I'm interested in feminist theory and cultural studies and um, young adult fiction, for me, it, it's a really interesting way to kind of try to understand our culture and our cultural obsession with adolescence and young women and what it means to be a teenager, since we kind of made up the idea of adolescence. So that's kind of why I like it. Yeah, definitely. And as far as like the uh, young adult literature um, being representative of culture, I feel like it's easier to learn more about a culture reading these kinds of books that aren't necessarily high literature um, in comparison to reading something that's a hundred years old or something written by some pretentious old white guy. Yep. Yeah. Well, and, and just the sort of false division between, you know, literary fiction and yeah. genre fiction. Mm -hmm. It's um, I mean, I'm not trying to suggest that every single thing has the same amount of worthiness in terms of being able to be analyzed or, but um, I, I think you can still choose books that are interesting and significant enough without having, making people read. I mean, when you think about, like I've looked at, for a while I was doing some research on um, what texts people who, because almost every university has a class in adolescent lit. Yeah. Every university that has an education department does. Mostly because they want people who are going to be middle school, high school teachers to take the class. And so it seemed to me that they were trying to say, this is how you learn about what adolescent bodies do or what, they, what they're like. But if you look at the syllabi from like the 80s and 90s and 2000s, a lot of times they just have, they have a very similar repertoire. They'll have um, Hatchet, which is some weird, you know Hatchet? Oh, yeah. I, love, I, I do you like, like Hatchet. I mean, it's weird, but I liked it. Nothing wrong with it, really. Yeah. So there's Hatchet, and then there's The Giver, 
Oh, and another book that I love. Really? Oh, wow, yeah. that's amazing. I love dystopian. Yeah, that's I have. I actually have a really cool graphic novel adaptation of the group. The oh, Giver that just nice. came out. Yes. But they're they're very similar in that there was kind of so this true. like a canon of yeah. YA that, that they thought people should read. And YA itself has become, you know, money making subset of oh, yeah. publishing. Yeah. So um, true that. Yeah. Well, and we kind of talked about so Twilight. It's it's kind of a crappy book. Like it's it's yeah. not, <laughs> I mean, we love it, but we, we well Justin and I have been talking about it. Is that just because a book is quote unquote like bad or I mean, not that it's bad. I'm not calling Twilight bad because you just called it crappy. Though. Crappy, you know, OK, but doesn't mean that we shouldn't analyze it. and doesn't mean that there's not something to be said about our culture or the writer or whatever in it. And so, yeah, that that's just something interesting that I keep thinking about or like we talked about with Sherman Alexi, just because he doesn't necessarily have the best past or maybe he did something bad doesn't mean that. We can't take something out of oh, absolute true diary of part-time Indian and that kind of people <laughs> looking down upon certain novels because of stigmas or that's because stigmas around how popular it is or stupid reasons that people like it. But we're doing a six episode in-depth a- analysis of Twilight, which is kind of a meme, but like there's good stuff in this. And this is really only the first book. Yeah. Like, can you imagine if you did the whole series? It would be amazing. It would, but there's, but there's reason. <laughs> Sorry, um, there's a reason why the book has, um, has so much, like I would say, longevity at this point. Yeah. I mean, what year did the first one come out? Two thousand five. Yeah, five. Yeah. I mean, that's the movie was two thousand eight. <coughs> Sorry, um, but I think when you say a book is bad or crappy, again. You have to kind of say, well, what do you mean by that? Yes. I mean, is it poorly written? I mean, I would say Fifty Shades of Grey is way worse than Twilight. True. And, you know, but somebody like Stephanie Meyer writes this book, writes four books. They become a phenomenon. They spawn all this other stuff. So what does that mean in terms of our culture? How do we look at that? Mm -hmm. (coughs) I'm sorry. I raked a lot yesterday, and I think I inhaled a bunch of dust. Uh, this morning, I almost didn't have a voice, and I thought, but now I'm better. <laughs> How am I going to be on this podcast? Yeah, I was kind of worried about it. So now moving into kind of combining what we've been talking about, our question that was setting us up for our next conversation is, does a book about high schoolers automatically make the reader assume it's young adult novel. So how does that play in a role oh, in Twilight? This is, I, I love thinking about this because it's so kind of fraught. I mean, one of the best ways, I think, to figure out if something is YA or not is what does the publisher tell you it is? Um, because, you know, like it or not, publishing has an effect on who the book gets marketed to. But I would I would also say that Books sometimes are published as adult books, and then they get sort of appropriated and they become YA, like the famous 17th Summer was published as an adult novel. Um, so aren't you happy about that? <laughs> but I'm so, I love that book. Well, good. I'm so glad. I'm one of maybe the only person in our class. Oh, no. Juliet loves it. There okay. are other people who like it. Okay. I mean, John hates it, but I think he hates it just to get under my skin. Yeah. yeah. So um, it, it's, it, you know, I would say. I used to make lists like, okay, what are the things that we have to have to, if you have these things, you can say it's young adult. 
and it used to be first person narrator um paying i don't think that's necessarily true anymore but (coughs) um and a novel that sort of views the lives of teenagers as valuable um that adults are usually at the margin but think about how that's changed even with dante and aristotle yeah um the parents are not at the margin so i think it's changing as a genre or a category of fiction but um Generally, I think it's, in a way, there almost always has to be a teenage adolescent character. Mm-hmm. But look at Catcher in the Rye. I mean, that's famously considered young adult fiction, but that was published in sections in the New Yorker magazine. Um, for And adults read that. And so, wait, is it adolescent lit because it's about Holden and his development as a jerk in New York <laughs> or whatever? But, um, so I don't know. I feel like there aren't, clear boundaries anymore um but you've seen how people argue about it in class like well is then again maybe i won't too young mm-hmm. um yeah i mean it's i think it's fun to to talk about but. and it's and it's also interesting because edward while he is eternally 17 he is actually about 117 right so he's far from being considered yeah, an adolescent a, he's been getting social security for like 100 no 50 years or whatever <laughs> But the, the other good example to think about this is I like to think about Harry Potter. What is Harry Potter? I mean, I don't think it's adolescent lit because they're little kids. They get to be like half adults at some point. Yeah. Aren't they adults? At the, at end? the end, they're young. Yeah. They and, but Harry po- who reads Harry Potter? Everybody That's read true. Harry Potter. I mean, most people. So Not me. <laughs> yeah, I didn't read any of I tried and I was like, okay. But I think if Harry were a girl, if it were Harriet Potter... I think it would be, which I love that name, Harriet Potter. But it, if Harry, if he were a girl, I I think it would have gotten less um, positive critical attention than it did, mm-hmm. because you know how we are about female protagonists. Boys wouldn't necessarily want to read it. Oh, I don't want to read a book with a girl protagonist. Yeah. So, yeah. We also were talking about how the stuff that happens in Twilight. It's not necessarily, like, stereotypical teenage issues. Like, they're dealing with... I mean, Bella specifically is dealing with a desire to be turned into an immortal being. Like... She doesn't want to grow up. Yeah. Either. Um, and and people are constantly calling her an old soul and that she's mentally older. And, you know, she's dealing with, like, wanting to marry Edward. And, yes, there's the stereotypical, like boys quote-unquote and love triangle but it's so much deeper than that that I don't know if we could like you could call this young adult because the stuff that it deals with is just much seemingly older at least in our it's it's an interesting way to think about it because I always think about um she's she's also very ageist like she's very worried that she is going, if she ages up to like in normal human years to 30, that she'll be seen as too old and unattractive or whatever for Edward, which I think is annoying, you know, like yeah. get over yourself. She threw a fit when she turned 18. Yeah. yeah. Oh my God. Her birthday party, she was so not happy. I mean, what do you guys think? Do you see it as YA? Hmm. I, I think I kind of do. And I think part of that has to do with 
the audience mm-hmm. and especially the audience that I was exposed to because most of the people I know who read this book read it in like fifth grade or something like that. So it's just kind of, I saw it as a young, the audience shaped my view of sure. what kind of literature it was. But well, then on, on my side, like I read it with my dad. And so reading Twilight with my dad, like we talked about in the last episode, just my dad created a lot of different thoughts on how society should be functioning and everything just because of who he is. He was a stay at home dad, had an art degree. So like my, my ideas of social construct of gender have been completely not what society thinks of since I was literally born, which has been something that I've been reflecting on a lot, but also with Twilight, like the fact that I read this with a 40 year old man and then he was, well, he was like 40, 50 when he was reading it. And then, rereading it now he's 60 like show kind of showed me that anybody can read this book and not that there's i'm not saying anybody can't read ya novels because we're clearly in a college class as uh, maybe i'm still in my adolescence but we'll see but just there's anybody can read YA, and i think that maybe i would maybe because of that i would call it YA, but that's the old i wouldn't call it YA because only adolescents can read it well, and it, um, I think it's what you said is really interesting about your dad. And you could write a really great article for somewhere, something called Reading Twilight with My Dad. That'd be a great article. Yeah. Even just a, you know, like an experience. Because what does that even mean? That's awesome that you did that. But um, I, I, I think the the sort of labeling aspect of is something YA isn't something YA. Um it's one of the things I grapple with all the time because I think it automatically, I mean, you saw that article in our reader about, you know, adults shouldn't read YA young adult fiction because it's crappy and it doesn't have important themes. Well, that's just wrong on its face. Considering all the books people blacklisted. Exactly. Too mature. Oh my God. Yeah. Or there's foul language in it. So I think it's just a way of um, being a snob, you know? But then, you know, like important book awards, like the National Book Awards, they have fiction, nonfiction, and young people's literature, mm-hmm. which I think is better than young adult. They just call it young people's. Mm-hmm. But yes. <clears throat> so I don't know. I mean, I'm not sure what the function of all of that is. But yeah. yeah. And like part of it, I kind of like I compare Twilight to um, the Vampire Chronicles from Anne Rice, because those are what I read right after I finished Twilight. And I think part of what could be considered young adult and what isn't is what content is not necessarily necessarily suitable for young people because some of those books I probably should not have been reading in sixth grade, but but you did. I did. To me, that's an interesting step and progression. You're like, oh, I've read the Twilight Vampires, you know, abstinence porn or whatever, and then you moved up to Anne Rice, who has a whole alter ego who writes erotica did yes, you know that have I, you read any of it no? i have read a bit of it oh my I god f- i found it in a, a bookstore and i didn't realize it was erotica i opened it up and yeah. my seventh grade mind was blown oh my god it's, <laughs> yeah i saw it in college and i was like wait what so i can't remember the name she writes it's like under. sleeping it's it's about sleeping <clears throat> beauty but yeah i forget her pen name for that. but you know um i Personally, I, because I'm a college professor and maybe just because I'm a radical, crazy person, I feel like anybody should read whatever they want. 
Because if little kids are reading something that's going to scare them, they'll just stop reading it. I mean, I, I when I was a kid, I looked for things with sex in them. I'm going to read about, <laughs> you know, who didn't want to read? You just want to read stuff that feels forbidden. This is why I feel like tweens, like when I was in sixth grade, I was reading The Godfather. I don't know oh. why, but it was so interesting. I was like, ooh, all this adult stuff and blah, blah, blah. And, um, you just, you kind of want to, it's a way of finding out the world that is not yet available to you yeah. and may never be available to you, hopefully in the Godfather. <laughs> but um, I don't think it, it probably didn't hurt you to read it. Oh no, yeah, I'm totally normal, more or less. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> whatever, or less. whatever that means. Yeah. And uh, with that, we have a word from our sponsors, um, Tichaba's Witch Cakes. You never know what you're going to find inside, but they're bound to be delicious. Get yours today. And that has been a word from our sponsor. And kicking off our next part of the conversation, we'll be talking about characters. Um, as you are Team Bella, we might as well start with her. Um, so r- the first thing that we're going to focus on is Bella in a liminal space. We just kind of define that you talk about it in our adolescent literature class all the time. It's one of your favorite ways to describe <laughs> characters. And you've found this new word that you love a lot. So... How do you see Bella in this space and what is kind of your definition of that? Well, I guess the general definition of liminality or liminal space is a space that's not defined in and of itself, but that's in between something and something else. So for like Angie, for example, from 17th Summer, sorry, <laughs> she um, is definitely between sort of the domestic and the public. And, and when she meets whatever his name is, oh my God, I can't remember. Jack, for the first time, she's in her yard. And so that, to me, is a liminal space. Barefoot, because, right? Yeah, barefoot. So she's not fully in the public, and she's not fully in the private, but she's in this in-between liminal space. And you can also see adolescence itself as being liminal because you're not really an adult, but you're not a child. So you have all these, you know, new... It's kind of like being a college student. You have new freedom and new responsibilities, but you're still beholden in some ways to being a child, to being part of a family, to being not completely, totally autonomous, right? Wow, Jocelyn, we're in liminal spaces. Yes, you are. I feel like we're always (coughs) in a liminal space, you know? Yep. Of some sort. Yeah, there are ways to to think about it that way, for sure. Yeah, and especially Bella, I would say she's kind of, she is currently, or yeah, when Twilight takes place, she's currently 17-year-old high school junior, um, but she's kind of always living in the future mentally and then once she learns about vampires and all of that she kind of stops living in a way um she doesn't yeah you don't really hear about school or anything it's just something she does she is yeah i guess living for the future and she's waiting yeah she's waiting well she's in just a bunch of liminal spaces as i see it like her liminal space is in I mean, even between her parents, between Edward and Jacob, between humanity and vampirism, Mm -hmm. there's so many different spaces that Bella is just kind of constructed as being compared to the space that she wants to be in. Yeah, and you can kind of see that because she doesn't, if you think about it, she doesn't have that much character development throughout the series. You're just reading about her moping around when Edward leaves a new moon having to pick between Edward and Jacob and then once she becomes a vampire she's finally able to like move on with her life Mm -hmm. um 
it's kind of sad actually but yeah i mean it her i think the liminal spaces you mentioned are really important and i also see definitely the parent one between mm-hmm. her dad and her mom um <clears throat> but since her function with her dad seems to be like cooking for him it, i see her role as also like um kind of between the domestic and something but she she's not necessarily between the domestic and the public because she certainly is in the public a lot but i think the waiting thing is important and i i like to think too about what does it mean <clears throat> to her to be a vampire so what um because when you think about adolescence as being in between for most people it's in between childhood and adulthood it's this transition it's a phase it's a process it's whatever it is so what is Bella in between? Is she, I mean, there are things about her that, um, like she becomes a desiring female when she meets Edward, right? And she becomes desired in herself. Yes. So, but she can't do anything about it. I mean, they can't do anything about it. They can't yeah. be intimate in that way. So um, in a way, she's in this weird pre-sexual, she's in a liminal space between ace not asexual, but pre-sexual and then sexual, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and ecotone, the word that I am newly obsessed with, <clears throat> is about, it's specifically a word that talks about ecology or biology. And it's the idea that it's the merging or it's the in-between of two biological spaces that have different flora and fauna. And so how does that relate to, I think especially with Twilight, it'd be interesting to think about the human vampire ecotone. I mean, what does that even mean? Because she goes from being a a delicious, whatever it's called, delicious food source for Edward. Like, how does he transform his desire? You know, think about this. He transforms his desire to eat her, to eat her, literally to consume her to a different kind of consumption. To a different, you know, it, it's, anyway, that's really interesting. Yeah, that almost, it almost makes it worse because the desire to consume <clears throat> her is still there. Yes. But he adds on this, like, romantic and sexual desire. So he's trying to combat both of these things. And he does mention, after, I think in New Moon or whatnot, after on the whole scene where Bella almost dies, he's kind of over it, her smell or whatnot. So that eventually goes away. But, like, in Twilight, he's torturing himself so much yeah you can see it in his face thank you robert pattinson for the incredible acting (laughs) you can see the the pain especially in when you you commented on my instagram your favorite how bella thinks that she has body odor yeah but it's so (laughs) great it's such a great moment that's so perfectly adolescent and and like teenage girl like why is he moving away from me right now yeah it's a moment that's it they shouldn't use that for like Another aspect of Bella's character is just her overall clumsiness and needing to be saved. Yeah, what do you make of that? I don't know, but it is just constant. That's something that's just constantly being brought up. And I think that it's interesting juxtaposed with the vampire's grace and like beauty and how Alice always looks like. Alice specifically is always is always being commented on twirling around and almost dancing. And 
it's interesting because the fight scene in Twilight happens in a dance studio. Oh, yeah. Um, but then there's Bella, who is literally just tripping over everything. Yeah. Slipping on ice. When they go to um, La Push, she is trying to keep up with everybody, but they're just hiking faster than her, and she literally cannot keep up. And it's just contrasted with the vampire's speed, and even the werewolf's speed, even though they're not quite aware that they're werewolves yet. But Yeah, and I think it has to do with, or I think it contributes to the pedestal that she puts the vampires on, um, and is probably one of the main reasons that, other than wanting to live with Edward forever, she wants to overcome this clumsiness and this needing to be saved. And that's the only way she can see that happening. And I guess what I've always wondered about the clumsiness is what, what is the purpose of it in terms of her character being, does she ever lose? Does she fully outgrow the clumsiness or? I don't think so. I think a lot of it, yeah, I think a lot of it is a reason for, it serves as a reason for Edward to be, um, at her beck and call, kind mm-hmm. of. And it also, at the end of Twilight, it's used um, as a scapegoat for what really happened to her because she supposedly tripped downstairs and fell through a window. And everybody's like, oh, yeah, that's totally a Bella thing. Of course. Thing. Haha. And <laughs> that, that whole scene is just hilarious because they talk about how Alice got it covered and how Alice definitely just went to that hotel and tripped herself down the stairs <laughs> And crash through the window just just to cover up the story. But there's <laughs> there's an interesting quote that is from when she was hiking in La Push, and it just says, I tried to keep up better this time through the woods, so naturally I fell a few times. I got some shallow scrapes on my palms and the jeans or in the knees of my jeans were stained green, but it could have been worse. And just the fact that even in her head, she's naturally, like, commenting on the fact that she trips a lot. <laughs> well, and I guess what I was thinking about, too, is that um, when you, it, one of the times I was giving one of those sample classes, there were, like, 26 young women in the room and one guy. And we were all kind of looking at him, and I said, oh, what are you doing here? He said, well, I knew this is where all the girls would be. <laughs> and so, which I thought was kind of funny. But one of the things all these young women said was that part of why they knew Bella was not, you know, necessarily the most powerful feminist role model, but that they felt like they could be her, that they felt like they identified with her. So maybe the clumsiness has something to do with like, just like a sort of example of being awkward teenage girl in the world who doesn't yet know her place. So Well, and even the gym, how she hates gym class all the time. Like that's such a, common especially especially for female like the trope in high school that the boys love gym class and the girls just suffer and they're like don't pass me the ball I told them not to do this I get hit in the head with the ball blah 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 well and there's a famous other teenage girl who is um tormented by her peers um, her name is Carrie and mm, there are a couple yeah. of scenes in that where she's in the gym and you know, she screws up the volleyball game and they yell at her and stuff. So um, I think in some ways, clumsiness is kind of like a, a a pre-stage for like grown-up grace or I don't know. It's it's an interest. I, I wonder if there's anything written about the clumsiness, maybe. Yeah. And it's also interesting because 
initially I kind of marked it off as just something kind of quirky, like, oh, I'm not like other girls. I'm clumsy. Um, But she's still pretty smart. So it's kind of thinking about how can I give this character a flaw without taking away from the mental aspects of their abilities? Something like that. I think that's a good a good call on it because I mean it doesn't really I mean when you think of somebody who's clumsy you know that's not a bad thing you're just like oh that person sometimes falls on their face or um, and it is a convenient thing for Edward to have to swoop in and snatch her up before she gets impaled on a branch or something so yeah um, yeah. Bella Bella constantly falling down One character that isn't necessarily a character, but we do want to dive into, is the truck. Her big red Chevy? Yeah. Yeah, Chevy. Big old American truck. American American truck. truck. Yep. But given to by the Blacks, by Jacob and Billy Black. Um, What, what, Jocelyn, what do we have to say about this? Well, it's much, her truck is mentioned a lot um, in relation to just its strength and its size and its ability to, um, I guess, deal out damage and not take any damage of itself, especially when you think about the van incident with Tyler near the beginning of the book. Yep. She mentions how her, his van was destroyed, but hers barely had a dent in it. Um, and also she mentions a lot that it's an American-made car, yep. so you get the whole undertones of pride in American industrialism and manufacturing. It's a MAGA truck. It's a pre-Trump MAGA red. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good question, though. Who would Bella vote for? Would she be a Trumper? And who would Charlie vote for? If she would even vote, because she mentions early, later in the series that she's Switzerland and doesn't want to pick a side. So, Oh, yeah. We'll see. No, she wouldn't vote. She's too busy. She's too busy being immortal. Yeah. Also, no, but the truck yeah. is... Truck, I just was thinking about the truck as being... Also symbolic of, I mean, it's old. It's an old truck. Edward is old, but mm-hmm. he's still functioning. The truck functions. Um, he's still functioning. <laughs> well, yeah, obviously. He really is. But, I mean, there's One some... One and done, baby. It's also... A, it's also... Yeah. It's also a... Um, it en- enables her... Oh, you guys are bad. It enables her mobility in mm-hmm. a really specific kind of a way. And I think it's important... I mean, that her dad is involved with giving her the truck. Yeah. But it's important that so much, so many things that happen to and for her are made possible by the men in her life. Oh, definitely. So, I mean, I don't know what that means, but it's worth thinking about. Well, yeah, she's basically, I've, I've spoken about this, but she's surrounded by men. Yep. Um, at different, her only female friends are Jessica and, what's her name? Can't even remember it. So does Twilight pass the Bechdel test? Do they talk about oh other? Do God. they toss, Do they talk about things that are men? Look this men? <laughs> now that I think I about it, that, doesn't, I bet it doesn't pass the Bechdel test. I'm looking that this up terrible. right now. That's terrible. I'm glad you thought of that though. Dang, I didn't think of that. Pretty much nothing passes <laughs> the Bechdel test. Well, it's hard to. I don't think so. <laughs> yeah, are there more than two? Wait, it says. It says. This it says this movie passed all three. It has to do with at least two named women in it. Talk to each other. Who talk to each other about something other than a man? Well, I guess Alice and 
Alice and Bella probably do, right? Oh, and I guess in the beginning when she's talking, um, when somebody's mentioning what to put in, like, the newsletter or something, and she's like, oh, you could do speedos on the swim team or eating disorders or something like that. Yeah, yeah. I think that the conversation's maybe brief. Or when they're, when they're like, shopping for prom dresses. I mean, they're talking about prom, which is an idea, but they're not necessarily... Yeah. They're not necessarily talking about men. Well, and here's the other thing about the Bechdel test. It's a great way to get you thinking about representation in film and representation of women. But on its face, I mean, Twilight is, you know, maybe it does pass the Bechdel test. But what's what's Twilight about? I mean, yeah. I don't know what it's about, but it's about Bella wanting to be a vampire. Yeah. Um, so... Yeah, but, you know, her wanting to be a vampire isn't just because she wants to be a vampire. She wants to be with Edward. Yeah. yeah. I mean, he becomes her her reason for being, mm-hmm. in a way. She really does. Yeah, and we have a lot to say about Edward. <laughs> we do. I'll bet. And you do, too, right? Oh, of course. Of course. Um, let's talk about, first, his... Let's put it under the umbrella term of controlling, I think can kind of be the blanket term that wraps up everything about him and what he does in relation to Bella. Um, And I think that specifically what I want to talk about is the fact that he thinks that he knows exactly what's best for Bella. Yeah. They've known each other for how long? I mean, he comes and goes a lot. So really, they probably knew each other for the equivalent of a couple months, a few yeah. months. Well, and I think it's interesting because, to his credit, he's been alive for 117 years. So he's bound to know something of importance. And he he is, but I'm, like, and his family talks about how they've been waiting for him to find somebody. But that puts so much pressure on Bella to just be this perfect woman that he's been waiting for. In yeah, a way. it does. And um, yeah, I don't even. I'm not even sure how to to talk about what that means for him and for her. Because, yeah, it seems like she was made, like, they were made for each other. Right. Which is a very Adam and Eve way of thinking of it. Granted, her blood kind of speaks to him, but what if she just didn't, wasn't about that life? Then then what was he going to (laughs) do? What would would Twilight be if Bella wasn't interested in Edward? That's a really good question. There's probably Him, there's probably a lot of fan fiction. It would be it that. would literally be just Edward continuing to stalk. Well, the other thing to think about um, with this problem is well, maybe it's not a problem, but if Edward is, um, you know, he's 117, she's 19 or 18 or 17 in the beginning, right? In the beginning, she's 17. 17. Mm-hmm. New Moon is her 18. Birthday. Oh, that's right. Yeah, and that's why they leave. <laughs> yep. Um, the fact that she has only known him for a brief period of time, and that yet they know that they're destined to be together is very much... I mean, you can tell me if you disagree with this or not, Mel, since you're the religion expert. But it seems to me that in fundamentalist religions, that happens a lot. Like, yes. fundamentalist Christianity, they're like, okay, you find this person, he's interviewed by your dad, and then... Like in that, yeah, there's so well, courting is a very strong yes. form of dating, and <coughs> that is usually an expedited process where 
It's very intense. It's not nothing casual about it. And you court somebody to marry them. You do not. You do not court somebody just to date and then break up. Well, and what they always, I, I think the language they use is really interesting. They say, well, it's very intentional. It's not like, oh, we're just going to hang out and see what happens. We are going to pursue this to its logical conclusion, which is marriage, which is a very, um, I don't want to say it's, it is conservative in a way. It's a very mm-hmm. particular, traditional way of looking at coupling and marriage. Yes. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, Edward, are we still talking about Edward? Yeah. So he is um, tends to be emotionally tends to be emotionally abusive to Bella. Um, not only in just the stalking, but in, in the staring. But he's constantly threatening to leave her. Yeah. And it eats her inside. Yet she's still coming back for more. So I don't know if that's just I don't I don't know what that is. Um, well, what does it sound like to you? To me, it sounds like a traditional abusive relationship. Yeah, because, it does. Yeah, I guess it does. Well, because think about what, you know, what we think about when we think about people who are in love and yet they're in an abusive relationship. They'll say, well, why don't you leave him? Well, I I love this person. Um, and what do you want? I don't want him to, I want him to stop being abusive. But she is, I think this is, it also reinforces the idea that Romance, heterosexual romance, and love, true love, whatever that means, is is supposed to be the most important thing in a person's life. Because mm-hmm. Bella has no career aspirations. She has no desire to learn. She just likes reading. Yeah. Yeah, she likes reading, and she cooks for her dad. And she's good in biology. She's good in biology. Which is interesting, right? But biology. she doesn't care about it. She no. She doesn't give a crap. She cares about biology because she gets to sit next to Edward. And look through a microscope. But she doesn't have, she doesn't want to go to college. She doesn't want to learn things. She just wants to be his wife. Well, and, and they use college as a mock way of, she's like applying to the University of Alaska or whatever. That's what she tells her parents. So that, In Breaking Dawn. In Anyways. Breaking Dawn, yeah. So that like, when she turns into a vampire, they don't question it. They, she just is like, yeah, I'm going to be gone for a while. Yeah, you show up later and still look exactly the same. Yeah, and also his he's constantly telling Bella how much he wants to harm her. Um, like when they're planning on going to Seattle or something like that, he's like, "You better tell Charlie because that gives me an incentive to bring you back." So these really mm-hmm. creepy things, and oh. she doesn't think anything of it, but it makes sense because. He's trying to warn her to stay away, even though he doesn't want to. He has, I guess, that sense of decency where he's not going to try that hard, but he's still going to try. He like her wants away. her to fear him. Yes. It's like the in the movie when he's like, do you think you can outrun me? <laughs> and he like gets so angry. because He's angry with her because she's not feeling fear to him. And I think part of that is if... He knew that she feared him. It would make it easier for him to stay away. Yes. So I just thought of that. Wow. Yeah. No, that's really interesting. It's it's a yeah, it's a very interesting relationship that those two have. Now that we've been bashing on him, though, we yes. do have one good quality of Edward, a other redemp- than his good a looks. redemptive quality, yeah. other than his good looks, of course. Yeah. Well. Apparent good looks, anyways. <laughs> um, he's very eco friendly. Yeah. 
Um, he mentions when he's telling Bella about their eating habits that they make sure um, to like hunt over a really wide space because they don't want to disrupt like the nat- the natural, um, I don't know, circle of life kind of stuff. Yeah, they don't want to just eat one population. They want to, you know, like pick off a few deer or whatever. <laughs> yeah, you know, populate keep the population healthy. Um, yeah. And he also mentions, I think, a couple times that they prefer running because it's one, it's more efficient, and two, it's eco-friendly. And it makes sense because they're stuck on this earth forever, so you might as well take care of it. Yeah. And if, if we look at the cars that they drive in comparison Our to fancy Bella's European cars, truck, yeah, but the, the Volvo that he drives is more, way more eco-friendly than the truck that Bella drives. Yeah. And all... To be and most of the other cars present in the movie, I mean, they even talk about how their fancy European cars look so shiny compared to the other cars, and just but that's because like they get better gas mileage, they're better for the environment, and also because they have a lot of money because they've been able to save up money forever. And Carlisle's a doctor, so yeah, exactly. But also, isn't that sort of a class thing too? Partially, yeah. Yes, definitely. Mm-hmm. They're definitely a part of a higher, higher class, like upper class, upper middle. Yeah, no, I, upper, upper. I don't know what kind of class a chief of police would be. Though. I guess it depends. Forks Washington, though. <laughs> yeah, that's a good question. But I mean, he owns his house, and he, they go out to eat. And, but he doesn't buy her a brand new car. No. He buys her this, or it's given to her. Given from. Yeah. I thought he said he bought it off of. Oh yeah. yeah. From, but obviously he didn't pay like a ton of money oh, yeah. for it. And he just put new tires on it. So it's like he's taking something that's old and functional and making it safe for her. But that's not something, if you have a, you know, a ton of money, you're not going to go buy some used red Chevy truck. True. Um, Unless you know your kid's going to wreck it, then there's no point in getting a new car. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. So moving on, we have some father figures in the book, which we've kind of talked a little bit about in our first episode with my dad. Um, but we want to dive a little bit more. So we have Billy Black. Um, he is Jacob's father. Um, we have Charlie Swan, Chief Swan, um, who is uh, Bella's father. And then we have Carlisle Cullen, who is Edward's quote-unquote father. Right. It is Father there, for all intents and purposes. Yes, just because of that. Because, again, not biological father, but also kind of biological father because, like, Biology, venom, you know, who yeah, knows? Yeah. Who knows? That works. Um, so starting, Jocelyn, do you kind of want to show your framework for how you kind of think of these characters? Yeah, so with the fathers, you have three of them, and Billy is very involved in Bella and Edward's relationship. Um, Charlie tries to be involved, and he wants to be involved, but because he doesn't know the reality of their relationship and, like, the fact that um, Edward's a vampire, he can't really be involved. And then um, Carlisle is very uninvolved. And um, it makes sense because I guess Edward's not really his kid mm-hmm. and Edward's basically an adult. So, you know, he has that kind of respect where they're kind of on, they're kind of equals. So he doesn't see it in his place to be involved in their relationship. Um, yeah, I, th- I find Billy's character very interesting because... In a way, like, I kind of hate him, but then in a way I can't hate him because there's just this idea that Billy knows everything. Billy knows that vampires exist. Billy knows that werewolves exist. Billy knows the history of the land. He 
he is like the wise man trope. You know, he 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 wow, knows the racial connotations. He's a yeah. magical Negro who's not really a Negro. Yeah, magical native. Yes. Yes, and so then he is constantly in Twilight. Specifically, his role is only a cautionary, cautionary figure. Mm-hmm. And even at the end, he sends he pays Jacob what twenty bucks to go to prom and warn Bella, like, I'll be watching you or something like that was his exact words. And just this idea of, like, I understand where he's coming from because he wants to keep Bella safe. But then again, it's that whole, like, why do men think that they need to continuously warn Bella about her choices and who she's hanging out with and that sort of stuff. And it's interesting because he's, like, assuming the role of Bella's father because he knows Charlie can't take can't take that role mm-hmm. because he doesn't know of all this supernatural stuff. Well, and think about it this way. He essentially, because he's in a wheelchair, he transfers his mobility, the truck, to Bella. And in some ways, you can look at this as a... In some ways, it's not really about Bella. It's about this vampire um, werewolf. Whatever right. you... Yeah. Like, it's like Romeo and Juliet, the Capulets and the Montagues. They oh, have this shit. long-standing, what, what, did I just freak you <laughs> yeah. out? I just, wow. I've never, th- like, I'm sure I have, but I've never thought about it. Well, I was just thinking currently. about it as as a battle between these two warring factions or families, because yeah. they are families in a way. Mm-hmm. So, see, maybe you could get other academic types to be interested in well, it. And mobility is so interesting with the fact that Billy belongs to this culture that is werewolves so their bodies literally transform and he does he can't yeah he's not a werewolf at all but he's just like oversees them and is a part of this culture but he is not able to because of his wheelchair but he has other powers the magical Mm. you know special and his knowledge yep yes and um so moving on to charlie um one of my i'm gonna read one of my favorite quotes it's a little long but Charlie is the epitome of old-fashioned American masculinity. And I'm going to share this quote. It comes on page 35, and it says, um, it's from Bella's perspective. It says, he hung up his gun belt and stepped out of his boots as I bustled about the kitchen. As far as I was aware, he'd never shot the gun on the job, but he kept it ready. When I came here as a child, he would always remove the bullets as soon as he walked in the door. I guess he considered me old enough now to not shoot myself by accident and not depressed enough to shoot myself on purpose. Oh <laughs> and I think about I think about the 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 purpose of the gun in in this book and also in the movie when before the baseball scene when um Ed, Bella is go, is introducing Edward for the first time and and Bella's like dad just pl- please be nice and then Billy's, or not Billy, Charlie's literally there sit, cleaning his gun and, like, goes, bring him in. <laughs> and, like, it's literally, and as if this gun could do anything to the vampires. Right. As if these these animals or beasts that he's trying to hunt the whole time in the book because these other vampires are coming in and killing humans. And so Charlie's this chief swan who's on this mission to go hunt these vampires as if he, as if this gun that he has he kind of mir- mirrors carlisle's father if you think about it because carlisle's father was you know dead set on hunting witches and 
werewolves and vampires and whatnot. And that's kind of what Charlie's doing unknowingly. And then also with that, Carlisle's Carlisle was better at it than his dad. And Bella is better at finding the vampires than Charlie is. Oh, wow. Well, and if you think about it, too, it's kind of, yeah, you guys are thinking of good stuff. It's dramatic irony because we know and Bella knows what's really going on, but Charlie doesn't. Yeah, Charlie's just there. He, he But you're right. He's he's a very sort of powerful kind of emblem of, you know, traditional American white masculinity. And like, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to cock my gun before her boyfriend shows up or whatever. Like and, if, if he knew that Edward were, was in her bedroom every night watching her breathe. Flip. Yeah. But like on the f- complete flip side of that, you gotta love Charlie. Oh, like sure. there's just something about him. And while he is the embodiment of all these things that are just like gross, you just think of oh, He tries. He tries sweet to be Charlie. A good dad. You know that's what makes it good. The effort yeah. is there. Well you gotta kinda think why I mean, what's the function of Bella going to live with him? I mean, she's obviously lived with him before, spent time with him. But part of it is because her mother has married some dude who wants to go to Florida. Because he plays baseball. Baseball, that's right. And so I think it's um, it, it's an interesting way to consider, because Bella is surrounded by men. And there's there's a, like when when you first were reading that scene about her being in the kitchen, if you didn't know, you wouldn't think that she was his daughter no. until you get to the part when she's young. But you know, she's just waiting for her sheriff husband to come up. Oh, oops, it's not, it's my dad, not my husband. So, <laughs> oof. Yikes. <coughs> um, so, moving on, we have some other Collins. Um, and Carlisle is, yeah, just kind of there hanging out, being a doctor, being his badass self. Um, and he's just kind of like a great dude that has set up this alternative way of living which we will dive into a lot in the next episode on religion um so we're not going to look into it that much but yeah he just he just is this floating around wanting just keeping his family safe moving around from town to town um doesn't wants to make sure obviously cares enough that he doesn't want bella to get hurt and mm-hmm. but he trusts edward enough and trusts this system enough that he is like, okay, this can happen healthfully. I don't, you know, I'm sure that there's conversations between Edward and Carlisle that we don't hear because of the narrative style. Yeah. But just as he's just kind of there welcoming her in, similar to, similarly to Alice, who also welcomes Bella in. Mm-hmm. The one thing that I think is interesting, though, is at the end of Twilight, um, when Bella is starting to turn into a vampire um, because James bit her, Carlisle makes Edward suck the venom out of her yeah. instead of him doing it because he he's Carlisle has a lot more self-control but the fact that he wants Edward to learn that lesson mm. I think is interesting it's a very fatherly <laughs> moment for Carlisle let my son suck the venom out of his girlfriend instead of me I want to see if he can do it <laughs> and if not then either she dies or maybe he was planning on stopping him if he couldn't mm-hmm. but, yeah. well there's something about him being this sort of benevolent rich guy too oh yeah like he you know like there's something interesting like maybe the the novel is kind of asking us to think about what is more valuable the sort of 
financial independence that that family has versus, you know, the real, I mean, cause there's no blood really in their family. They're just like vampires hanging out, mm-hmm. but Bella's dad is Bella's dad. So, well, and Charlie loves Carlisle. He does. <laughs> he is the number one fan of Carlisle and just amazed. And that, that kind of, again, mirrors like, Bella's infatuation with Edward and Charlie's infatuation with Carlisle. Like, it just, it shows the effect that the vampires have on normal humans. That I think that's just, like, the key is that humans look at vampires as this, like, higher level of... Even if they don't know they're vampires. Yes, even before they know that. Yeah. Yeah, and the fact that, I think it's mentioned once that Carlisle could be working at some big hospital making so much money, but he's choosing to be humble and work in Forks, Forks. even though he has a pretty nice house. Well, and Forks, too, um, I think that's an interesting name for a novel about liminality. If you think about Forks and the Road and, you know, I don't know. Yeah. Forks. It's a real place. I know. I didn't know that. Also, people go there now. It's a tourist distance. Well, it probably isn't that much anymore, but yeah, you can see the house. You can see all that fun stuff. Road trip. Yeah. All right. So what's your thoughts on Jasper? Okay. So (laughs) my thing is I don't trust Jasper and you want to know why? Yes, we do. He was a Confederate soldier and that is, that's why I don't trust him. And also I was like, okay, you know, people change, people change, but then I was reading um, the Twilight Wiki, so, you know, may or may not be that reliable. Um, And it talks about how once you become a vampire, um, your interests, dislikes, and personalities are permanently petrified. So you maintain those. My impression of that statement is you maintain those same interests for your entire immortal life. Right. So how could he really change? I think that's a really good observation because mm-hmm. once a confederate always a confederate always you know <laughs> does he call it the war of northern aggression that's what people used to say <laughs> in louisiana oh you mean the war of northern aggression <laughs> i wouldn't be surprised and uh yeah lastly before we wrap things up um we just want to justin and i specifically want to comment on werewolves um and we have already received some criticism about not having a team jacob fan on the show um and can you find one maybe that's the problem yeah well what we want to talk about is one it's not our fault that neither of us are team jacob no you can't help yeah we can't just like bella can't help it and (laughs) thankfully thankfully we learned today that beth is a lean jacob fan so maybe that will give us some credibility but also, Jacob is just not very present in this book. He's not a werewolf yet. He has a transition. Um, and while we are pulling from other parts of the novels, um, it's he's not a main character yet. And lastly, we I personally believe that Jacob is inferior because Bella denies him so many times in a romantic relationship, and he continues to go after her in Eclipse, forcing himself upon her with a kiss and I believe that while we might be looking at quote unquote a lesser of two evils with both of Ed, both Edward and Jacob being kind of creepy Jacob is 
the one that doesn't get consent at all. Yeah, that is true. Well, let me just point out too, since you guys are, you know, talking about it this way, is that 20, 30 years ago, kissing somebody without consent was not that big of a deal. I mean, I know it is. I know consent is important. I'm not really arguing against that. But um, I mean, neither of these two guys. I mean, that's the hard thing is which one really cares about Bella, Mm -hmm. cares about what she wants and what. And I guess the reason I like Jacob, too, is I feel like he sort of hangs back a little in the beginning. But um, I just like the idea of being a werewolf, too. Yeah. And it's also interesting because in the books, Jacob is about 15 years old. So yep. he's he's tiny. Mm-hmm. Um, well, not tiny, with yeah. his long hair. Yeah. So and I think and that's part of the reason that Bella is not really into him is because he's so much younger than him. Well, and she even talks about how she, like, uses him to get stories. Oh, this is what I also don't like about Jacob. He exposes the Cullens in the book, in the movie. Yes, it's In the movie, point. it's not as prevalent. He doesn't say they're vampires. But in the books, Jacob lit- seriously calls them vampires and exposes the Cullens for what they are and didn't even give edward a chance to like discuss it with bella mm-hmm. and i think that that violates the treaty it does outright <laughs> but he, he doesn't believe in that so like that's where i guess you could give him credit but yeah he broke some laws there yes and the other thing is i think if you think about edward versus if you just think about edward versus jacob what kinds of masculinity are they do they embody and Edward is definitely a more feminized version of masculinity. Oh, and oh, Jacob is like the sort of uber, you know, uber. Rugged, fixing cars. Exactly. And, and Motorcycles. Yep, yeah. yep. And he's, I mean, you can look at them visually in the film, too, if you think about Pattinson versus whatever. Well, Taylor, Taylor Lautner. And just even like the body, especially in New Moon, when like he takes his shirt off and he's like the epitome of what every man believes that they should look like whereas edward is kind of scrawny and you know pasty and that makes me kind of be ashamed of my veering towards jacob but but you know if you think about edward as it's interesting how you want to define masculinity as because he seems like sort of vaguely european and kind of you know he's interested in clothes and all that kind of crap Mm -hmm. so um, and music records. Music, yes. I don't know. It's kind of... But he embodies the the heterosexual predatory male very well. I mean... Literally predatory yeah. as in a wolf. Yeah. yeah. So, wow. They're both very predatory. Yep. Well, folks, that's all we have time for today. We'll see you next time. And don't forget, stay thirsty. <laughs> <laughs>